I knew uh, that those really smart middle linebackers were watching my feet, my hands, even my knuckles. On this second annual Wavemaker podcast special, How to Watch the Super Bowl Better Than Your Friends, introducing Super Bowl champion center Bill Curry. When the center's knuckles turn white, that means he's about to snap the ball. So (laughs) naturally, I would get in the wrong stance about half the time, and I would do a little white knuckle, and people would jump, and then they'd start accusing me of drawing them off sides, and I would just stand there looking as innocent as possible because all I did was make my knuckles turn white by slightly gripping the ball. I'm Michael Shoulder. My guest was the center for Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers when they won Super Bowl I. He was the center for the Baltimore Colts when they won Super Bowl V. And he was the center for the Colts when, thank goodness, they lost to my childhood idols, Joe Namath's New York Jets, in Super Bowl III. Bill Curry went on to become one of the great head coaches in college football, from Georgia Tech to the University of Alabama, the University of Kentucky, and finally, Georgia State. This is Georgia's own Bill Curry. Coach Bill Curry, uh, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. I was sitting here being insanely curious about your title. I want to start by telling you uh, that... I didn't realize it, but when I was nine years old, it turns out after having read uh, read your book, Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle, and reading about your history as an NFL player, uh, it turns out when I was nine years old in January of 1969, I was rooting against you because I was a New Yorker and Super Bowl, what they now call Super Bowl three, but was really super, the first Super Bowl ever, the New York Jets against your Baltimore Colts. I was a New Yorker rooting for Joe Namath and the Jets, and they beat you. And reading your book, uh, it's it's a loss that, at least when you wrote that book about 10 years ago, was still stinging all those years later. I want you to tell me about what it was like to be in that Super Bowl. And also, I am, I am, I am insanely curious about your position, which was center. So tell me about what it was like Number one, being center and being center in that Super Bowl. Well, first, let me say that about every third person I meet was nine years old and was a Jet fan when that game was played. Uh, There were a lot of New Yorkers that were nine at that time, apparently. Um, And they loved to tell me about it and to remind me about the game. As for being a center, um, the center's job is simple. All you all you have to do is to learn to hike the ball and be run over slowly. That's what we do. And if you can do that sufficiently, then you get a chance to play with the greatest athletes in the world. And that's what we did. So um, in a nutshell, that's my experience with nine-year-old Jet fans in 1969. Let me slow you down there because because you said hike the ball and get run over slowly. And I know that sounds facetious on one level, but I, I guess it's not because the longer it takes to run you over, the better your quarterback is going to be protected. Precisely. There are so many jokes about the center position and the relationship between the quarterback and the center, and psychologists have had fun analyzing the very act of the hiking of the ball. And I've got a whole routine that I do about the way I was introduced to the position, but uh, it takes too long to do it here. I, suffice it to say that I, I wanted to pitch for the New York Yankees. I would rather have been on your side. 
um, in, as a New Yorker, maybe you were a Mets fan as well as a Jets fan. I don't know. But when I was a kid, I was a Yankee fan. I didn't even watch football. I, I didn't have any intention of going out for football because it might mess up my um, four-seamer down in a way which I intended to throw to Yogi Berra in my naivete. So um, I, I, you, you sort of get stuck at center if you're the least talented guy on the team. At least in our day, that was the case. Well, you say least talented guy on the team, but let me let me bring in your favorite sport, baseball, because recently I was interviewing uh, Faye Vincent, the former commissioner of Major League Baseball. He spoke to a lot of the Hall of Fame baseball players, and his favorite story, I think, of all time was, and you being a baseball fan would know, Warren Spahn, Hall of Fame pitcher. I loved Warren Spahn. I loved his control. Yeah, I loved his motion. Well, a very unusual motion. Faye Vincent said he was talking to Warren Spahn, I once said to him, Warren, who taught you how to pitch? And his answer is the single most brilliant answer on any question I've ever received talking to anybody. And he looked at me as if I had to be the dumbest person he'd ever talked to about baseball. And in sort of a, a patronizing way, he said to me, Commissioner, hitters taught me how to pitch. And so I guess my question for you is, who taught you how to play center and more broadly how to play football? What a great answer. The technical aspects of center being able to bring the ball up or get it to the right place and step simultaneously in the correct position after just having made the call that determines the blocking scheme for the rest of the offensive line in a fraction of a second after uh, the quarterback has called his audible, if, if indeed he does that, then you have the privilege of uh, forcing yourself to be in a very unnatural physical position, which is knees bent, head up, back flat, with your feet moving into the forearm and into the pads of somebody like Merlin Olson or Joe Green who are vastly superior athletes. And there's one advantage, and I'm, I'm being serious now, there's one advantage that the center has, and it's the only one. And it is that we know the snap count, which means we can get the jump on everybody, and we should. If you're a center, and if you aspire to play at the highest level, you must have that advantage. You must give yourself that hundredth of a second. Otherwise, the superior athletes like Merlin Olson and Joe Green will absolutely obliterate you and then the quarterback, and you will have had a very short career. So I learned from coaches how to do the snap and the step, but I learned from, much like Spawn, I learned from the great Hall of Fame players that I played against how to play center. And, you know, just just in that brief description, it sounds like, you know, in addition, in addition to the physical prowess that you need and the physical abilities, it, it there is a lot of mental processing that goes on before that ball is snapped. And it's only it's only in the past few years when I became a little obsessed about the position of center because nobody talks about the center. Everybody's talking about the quarterbacks. But you talked about how you are and you alluded to it, really. You have to read, your job is to read that defense, and we can't hear it when we're watching it on TV, but you're calling plays to your fellow offensive linemen, right? That's exactly right. And uh, we, we will have a predetermined blocking scheme and 
if a call is required, the center recognizes that it's not the defense we anticipated, and so that's the first call. That may be before the quarterback begins his cadence. Then the quarterback begins a cadence, which may include an audible, meaning he's changing the play. Immediately, he has to give a pause such that the center can make a change in the blocking scheme, because if that doesn't happen, nobody up front knows who to block. Then the quarterback continues with the numerical count, and the ball is snapped, and the play goes off. But uh, in, in a matter of a couple of seconds, there are huge ramifications to every sound you hear. And if you can't hear each other, then there have to be signals uh, other than the norm where people actually reach out and some of the linemen hold hands. You notice that that's not because of affection. That's because uh, neither one of them can hear the snap count and the tackle goes off the guard's hand, the touch of the hand, to know when to begin to block on the play. It's, it's all, it requires hundreds of thousands of repetitions just to begin to be an offensive line that's cohesive. So wait a second. So so when we see there are offensive linemen, and again, we're so often as a viewer, our eyes are focused on the quarterback and we're getting ready to watch where that wide receiver is going to go or where the quarterback's going to hand off to. But we should be looking for offensive linemen who actually touch each other's hands at some point. Sometimes. Uh, that was more popular in uh, the, a few years ago than it is now, but you still see it at times when the noise is... Uh, overwhelming when the crowd has decided to become part of the game more than ever they've always been enthusiastic about trying to our stadium in baltimore with the colts when we had those great teams was called the world's largest outdoor insane asylum and that was the reason you really couldn't hear if the crowd didn't want you to so things had to be done silently and i think it was about that era that the guards and tackles began to join hands if they couldn't hear each other, at least the tackle could know when he felt the guard's hand retreat, the play was on. Wow. And in, t- and in terms of, again, reading your book and just having spoken to other football players, there's this art of reading the defense. I mean, you have some great descriptions in your book about that. They're very subtle shifts in how hands are lined up and feet are lined up. And it must take a really long time to sear that in your memory, to know what the implications are for the action that's about to take place at rapid speed. So tell me, tell me what you used to look for as a center. And I've got to bring this in. So the first episode I did that I uh, last year at this time called How to Watch the Super Bowl Better Than Your Friends, really designed to give the audience you know, sort of an insider's perspective so they, they can see things and notice things that they would never have noticed before. I spoke to Nick Bonaconte, great Hall of Famer, middle linebacker, who you faced, and he talked about reading the offense. Here's what he said. You read the triangle, which is the center and two guards. And if you can read the triangle, they're going to take you to the football almost every play. Well, if I played against Nick, which which I did a lot, we, we played against – I have great respect for Nick. Because he, we were both undersized and had a chip on our shoulders. I understand that your college coach at Notre Dame told the pro recruiters that, no, this guy's not pro material. Is that true? What, what he said is, which is um, a, a lot more poignant, is that I would run through a brick wall – but the hole I would leave would be small. That was his way of saying that uh, that I was too small. 
a game between the two of us was sort of the the midgets competing, and yet uh, we both wanted to be super effective. And I knew how smart Nick was as a football player. Another guy was Dick Butkus. Another was Willie Lanier. And I would actually, uh, I, I could adjust my stance if I needed to do a, a particularly difficult block, which is for a right-handed center, for instance, to do a what's called a reach block to his left. If I've got to reach a defensive tackle that is lined up f- to my left and the play is going in that direction, that's that's extremely difficult. So I might adjust my feet such that I could do that. I knew uh, that those really smart middle linebackers were watching my feet, my hands, even my knuckles. When the center's knuckles turn white, that means he's about to snap the ball. So <laughs> naturally, I would get in the wrong stance about half the time, and I would do a little white knuckle, and people would jump, and then they'd start accusing me of drawing them off sides, and I would just stand there looking as innocent as possible because all I did was make my knuckles turn white by slightly gripping the ball. All those little mind games are going on when you watch these guys play. You know, we have the technology. I wish those cameras could zoom into the white knuckles because I'm sure you figure that out, that there must be other centers who do that kind of thing. Oh, you're sure. Guys like Butkus would um, actually lean the wrong way, a a way other than where he intended to go. And the really great middle linebackers are so intuitive. Uh, One reason they were almost impossible to block is because you you couldn't be sure of what they were going to do. He could keep the center guessing. So it's a, it's a really fun mind game that goes on in addition to the physical violence. After you've got your mind part down, you better be able to take on a blocker if you're a defensive player, and you better be able to deliver a block with your head up and your feet churning and underneath the block protection of the defender. If you can't do all of those things and do them 105 times in a long game and 70 times in a shorter game. If you can't do that over a period of three and a half hours, week after week after week, then you're really in the wrong business. And so it's incredible to me. It's at the end of this long season, which is longer now than it even was when you played in your Super Bowls. Uh, uh, it's incredible to me after taking that pounding. I mean, is there is there, is there ever a play where you, the center, any of the linemen or any of the, the high contact positions, is there ever a play that you finish that doesn't hurt? Well, there, there are plays like that. If you're a guard or a center, but especially in my day when, you were, when we were centers, most of the defenses in the NFL, unlike the AFL, the Jets, for instance, most of the defenses were what we call even defenses, meaning they were a 4-3, four down linemen and three linebackers. And, of course, there were four defensive backs. When a team lines up in a 4-3, normally that means that there are going to be two big tackles on the guards and two ends on our tackles and a middle linebacker off the ball in front of the center. So on a passing play, that means the center, unless the linebacker blitzes, the center doesn't have a block. So the center drops and helps out if somebody gets beat up front. We might know that Alan Page is on one side. You better look that way or Bob Lilly. Um, if you're the if you're the option blocker, and that's what you're called, the option blocker, you are uncovered. Uh, so if you're uncovered and your middle linebacker doesn't come and nobody gets beat one on one, then you don't hit anybody that play. So those those were the only painless plays, and they were few and far between. 
So let me ask you, I have a final question about centers, and then I want to move it forward after that. But, you know, so uh, because I'm a little obsessed with centers, I really watch them. And, and I wrote this piece after talking to a couple of centers a while back called not journey to the center of the universe, but journey to the universe of the center. That's good. For the last Super Bowl, I said, keep your eye on the centers just for a few plays. Just watch them. And sure enough, you remember that first play in Super Bowl 49 last year? I sure do. I just got such empathy for Peyton and the guy that did that. And the guy who, who missnapped the ball, and you, you used a word in there that I hadn't known until last year because at the press conference after the game, after that first play where the, the, the ball was oversnapped, and it sort of set the tone for the whole game, and the center came up and said, it was my fault, I misheard the cadence. That's a term that a lot of serious football fans know. I hadn't known it until last year. You've used it in our conversation. Give us, just give us an example of, of what cadence sounds like and what a difference it makes. And um, you know, over the crowd noise, which can be deafening, how difficult it could be to hear that cadence, even for you in the middle of it. I should say here that I never played in the shotgun, so I never had to snap the ball to a quarterback that was four or five yards behind me. So the cadence was just above my head, and I could virtually always hear exactly what Bart Starr or John Unitas or whomever the quarterback, exactly what they were saying. Describe, describe, describe cadence. Just give me an example of just a, a real-life example of what ca two different cadences sound like. All right. The system in Green Bay, the quarterback would come to the ball, and we were already in a three-point stance. He would call a, um, a one-digit number and then a two-digit number. He would say perhaps uh, 283, 283. Well, if he repeated the snap count, if the snap count were two, that meant he was changing the play. Maybe we had a 49, which is a running play, and he was changing it to a pass audible, which was a, a, the 83. The 8 was to indicate the kind of blocking, and the 3 was the pass route. Then he would go ahead and do the hike, hike, and on the second hike would snap the ball. In Baltimore, uh, the quarterback would come up and set us, set, and then he would deliver a color. He'd say blue. 81, blue, 81. Well, there was a live color. Every year there was a live color. It was changed periodically. So if he called the live color, then the next number you heard was a new play. If he said anything other than the live color, you ran the play that was called in the huddle. So it would be uh, down, blue, 19, blue, 19, hut, hut. And so you'd go on the snap count, which might be two or three, unless he changed the play. In Baltimore, if he changed the play, then the snap count reverted from the three or two and became one. So I never understood the reasoning for this, but you didn't question Don Shula on matters of snap count. But let's say we had it called on three and he changes the play. The snap count reverts to one. So there's plenty of margin for error for people to mishear or misthink something unless you've practiced this hundreds of thousands of times. So let's just say um, he says blue 88, blue 88, sit, hut, hut. All right. If he had just changed the play with the live color, then you run the 88 play. If he didn't, then you run the play that he had called. 
There was one other option that the quarterback had. In the huddle, he could say, and we always huddled, which is, unless it was a two-minute drill, uh, in which the whole system changed, and that's that's another lengthy conversation. But we huddled, and he, Unitas would step in the huddle and say, disregard the color. He would come up, and he knew that the defense thought that they knew our live color. So he would call the live color, but since he had said to disregard it, we went ahead and we would run a play opposite of what they anticipated. And you could really baffle people with that sort of thing. So all these mind games happen before you even get hit or deliver the hit. Now I want to ask you a broader question because, you know, having listened to you, and by the way, I want to give a shout out to Action Ministries of Atlanta because that's where I first discovered you and heard you speak. And you are a very inspiring speaker and, and your insights on leadership and resilience and character far transcend football, but they're tied to your experience in football. And Action Ministries, by the way, does incredible work. Uh, I mean, their, their tagline is leading people out of poverty, and I have witnessed their teams do that firsthand. So I do want to give a shout-out to them, and I know you're Well, let's give a shout-out to your daughter who won an award that morning. Tell us about that. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I'm not sure she wants the publicity, but we'll just say that you know, she volunteers at one of their kitchens, Action Ministries kitchens for, for homeless women and children, and she just doesn't hand out food. I mean, she comes back and tells us stories about how she saw a lonely person sitting by herself at a table and went to keep her company and talk to her. And that's, that's all I can tell you about that, that we're, you know, thrilled that, you know, she's involved with that. Uh, well, that's all you have to say. And when my wife came to me um, years ago and said, I-, I really think we ought to get involved in something called Action Ministries, I said, well, tell me about it. She said, we minister to women who are alone in the street with children. I said, we're in. Uh, there's nothing better than that. How wonderful. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at dominoes.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at dominoes.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. There's a little story in your book that sort of showed the sensitivity you had from a very, very young age. You talked about going to summer camp in Georgia and in Georgia in the South, you know, where football is a religion. And you talked about at summer camp, it really left an impression on me. You, 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 you boys would catch these bugs or insects, these flying insects, and you would, tie, you would tie their legs and sort of control their flight. You sort of came to the realization that this was a cruel thing. And, you know, not that many kids at that age come to that realization. So where did you get your empathy from? And, and was, did you get it in part from leaders in football or did it come from your parents or where did it come from? 
It came from virtually every direction. I think that um, God looked at this youngster, yours truly, and thought to himself or herself, this one's going to need more help than most. And so at every turn, there was somebody, starting with my mom and dad, and then Sunday school teachers and choir directors and little league coaches and high school coaches and right on through Bobby Dodd, Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, and then teammates that took me under their wing. If you read the book, you understand how the great Willie Davis, the defensive captain of the Packers, uh, responded to me when I had never been in a huddle with an African-American person. And here I was trying to make the greatest team in the history of sport. At least that's what they were being called. And Lombardi's greatest attribute is that he would not tolerate racism. So we had a lot more African-American players than most, and I didn't know how to act around them. I thought I would say something foolish, and I did, and they could have responded one way, but they chose instead to embrace me, and especially Willie Davis, who essentially guided me through it. We called him Dr. Feelgood because I, Ray Nitschke could be tearing my head off and I could run find Willie Davis and say, how you feel, old man? He said, feel good, man. You can do it. Well, he, he changed my life. He transformed my perspective on everything. We were right in the middle of the civil rights movement. And so the sensitivity that we learned from not being cruel to insects when we were seven years old was easily... I think, transmitted to the human organism, learning that because of someone's pigmentation or a difference in ethnicity, that's no reason that we can't uh, love each other. Davis was the defensive captain of the great Green Bay Packer teams in the early 60s, the teams that won five world championships in seven years. That will never be done again. He was from Grambling State University. He was working on his master's degree in business at the University of Chicago while being the defensive captain of the Green Bay Packers. And I was so utterly intimidated by him that I could hardly breathe when I walked near him. His response to that was to embrace me, to take me in and to counsel me and to encourage me. And he said, when you don't think you can take it another minute, you come find me. I'll get you through it. I'll get you through it. I'll never forget those words. And so tell me about, because uh, I've heard you talk about that before, but this realization of, of race uh, and, and those distinctions, how, how they end in the huddle. And you have a term for it, the miracle of the huddle. But tell me about what you consider to be the miracle of the huddle and, very importantly, how it might apply to America's public life overall. It certainly applies to our public life. It applies to our faith. If we are, all the major religions subscribe to the tenet of love your enemies, love those that despitefully use you. And um, we've paid no attention to that part of the message. And I'm talking about all the major faiths now, not just the Christian faith, although Jesus emphasizes that more than most, I believe. But um, when I speak to youth groups, as I did yesterday at a high school, and they're all taken with the Super Bowl, and they want to see the Super Bowl ring. So I force my old finger, and I put the thing back on, and my arthritic fingers, I can hardly accommodate it. But they want to see that. But I want them to understand, and I'd like everybody to understand, the teams that win and win and win have one thing in common. The men on the team refuse to let each other down. They love each other. And it doesn't matter what color their skin is. The teams that have that are almost impossible to beat because in the crunch, we all want to quit. 
We all get tired. We all get bloody. We all think we're more important than somebody else, but we begin to realize that that sweat smells the same on everybody because we're forced into this module, this team, this huddle on a daily basis by coaches that demand our very best so that when we get to that moment of truth and we feel like quitting, we just can't do it. This little voice says, no, you're not going to let Willie Davis down. You're going to give everything you've got, and then you're going to give some more because you can't let your brother down. And that's what causes great teams. That's the miracle of team and the miracle of the huddle. And so what did you do as a coach? Because you are quite a legendary coach in college football. What made your coaching style perhaps distinctive and what you channeled from the people who coached you? You were coached by Vince Lombardi. You were coached by Don Shula, two of the greatest coaches in the NFL, with two fundamentally different coaching styles. Which one did you pick up more from, and which one did you channel more? Well, first, it's important for me to note that my record doesn't resemble theirs at all. I wish it did. I learned that I couldn't be Vince Lombardi or Bobby Dodd or Don Shula. I learned that the hard way. I had to be Bill Curry. I am not a genius. I am not a football natural when it comes to recognizing patterns and trends and calling plays. I am a plugger. I get by on perseverance and pushing myself and being loyal and loving my teammate and loving my team. And so we tried to emphasize those things. And I believe for most of our men and the young ladies that worked in our programs, we were successful at that. My wife is such an accurate monitor of my behavior. She actually watched me on the sidelines, and there would be times she'd say, you're trying to act like Coach Dodd today. Well, I would hit the ceiling. Well, you know what that means. When your wife corrects you and you get furious, what does that mean? Oh, that means she's right. That means she's exactly right. So yeah, trying to be like Bobby Dodd, it didn't work. So um, I think the most crucial thing for any leader is to be oneself and then to make sure that everybody you work with knows that you care about them and that you will expect their best and you expect each person to take responsibility for his or her actions and that you will hold them accountable for those actions and their contribution to the overall unit. You talk about that sense of, you know, knowing that you, that that enabling your team to know that, you know, there's this is coming from love. And I was really struck by the contrast between the, the Vince Lombardi style of coaching, which I'm sure a lot of people have today, a lot of coaches have today, versus the Don Shula. Vince Lombardi was much, much tougher, it sounded like, in many ways in terms of the way he treated his players versus Don Shula, who sounded, from your description, like he really made football fun, although the training sessions sounded harder in the preseason. But but which which of those two methods do you think inspire people to perform their best? Well, they got virtually the same results. They both had phenomenal records. Shula is actually the winningest coach in the history of the NFL now because he coached so much longer. But Coach Lombardi, uh, his playoff record was 9-1. and one. They lost the first playoff game they ever played, which was against the Eagles in the world title in 1960. They never lost another one. So for me to say that Coach Lombardi's methods were not as effective, I, I, all I'm saying when I write the book is that I didn't like his methods. I was not tough enough. I wish I had played for him later. He, he, he seemed abusive to me, and I said that publicly and then had to go to his hospital and apologize to him where he proved by forgiving me that his 
priorities really were faith, family, and then football. When, when that happened, that was another life-changing moment. So he became a different kind of spiritual mentor on his deathbed than he had been as a coach. For Don Shula, he, he had the capacity, I think the reason Shula won more games than anybody else, was that he could recognize something in players that nobody else wanted. I was one of them. He took guys that were free agents that had been thrown on the junk heap. And again, I was one of those. And he kept giving us chances. And by the time we got a chance to play, we would lay it on the line for him every single Sunday. And I would do it again. So tell me something. So you you really bounced back a lot. And, you know, you uh, you have to bounce back after every, every play. But going back to that first Super Bowl against the Jets that you lost, um, you didn't like that feeling and yet, in some ways, did it, did it make it possible to get your two Super Bowl rings in, in the subsequent years? Did that loss actually end up helping you become a better player? And did it help Baltimore become a better team? Well, if you stay in football for any time at all, and, and we all know what the negatives are, and there are plenty of them. We're dealing with some, some stunning information that has been guarded and hidden way too long now about brain trauma. But the great stuff about football is that you do get knocked down almost every play, and you got two choices. I mean, there are two pains in life, the pain of discipline, the pain of regret. You choose. You're going to get knocked down maybe a hundred times in a game. you got two choices. You either wallow and feel sorry for yourself, or you get up and do the next right thing. Get back in the huddle, get the next play and get your heart going and give your heart again and again and again. When that becomes the habit, then you have been transformed into a different kind of person and one that is reliable and one that folks can count on. And that's what teammates are. So you mentioned the name Merlin Olson earlier. Uh, He was the guy who hit you so hard at the knees, shattered your knee, ended your career. Uh, You've had to bounce back from a lot not just individual games, but but career setbacks, uh, setbacks as a coach. Um, Tell me what your biggest challenge is uh, right now in life or recently, one that you successfully overcame and how you overcame it. The one that's the most apparent to me, I have not overcome yet, but I tend to do it with divine guidance, and that is my ego. My sensitivity or regarding myself somehow as special or that I should be treated a certain way. Unfortunately, what goes along with all this uh, stuff of football accomplishment and uh, adulation and awards and Super Bowl rings, sometimes the ego gets out of perspective. And that happened with me. I fell into that trap. So I pray daily, and I've got uh, meditations, and uh, I've got some wonderful guidance, again, as usual. Uh, no longer football coaches, uh, so much as uh, spiritual guidance to deal with this issue. And I think I've uh, been given the, the grace to, to see some progress there, where <laughs> one t- I had one buddy who's no longer living, and he got upset with me because I didn't call him back quickly. He left a voicemail. He had a big, deep voice. Uh, Josh Powell was his name. Uh, he called back, and and the second time he called back, after I had not called him back for several days, he said, and by the way, Bill, don't bother to return this call because, you see, I'm extremely busy and very important. Well, I got the message. <laughs> I, call, I said, okay, I'll call you back quicker. Uh, 
big fella. I, but but I got that message, uh, and I realized that I could come off that way. And uh, my children and grandchildren are ruthless. <laughs> they let me know when it happens. So that's, I think, that's my biggest challenge, and I think I'm being uh, helped enormously in that area right as we speak. Very, very last question. You you had a line in your book, and this is fascinating and for, fascinating for every young person to listen to. You said you discovered over time that the old adage, practice doesn't make perfect, isn't quite true. Perfect practice makes perfect. How do you translate that for kids today? That's just such an important and critical thing to learn because doing something over and over only reinforces that which you are doing. And if you're doing it improperly, and we've all been guilty of it, then all you're doing is reinforcing the bad habit. Back to that thing, two pains in life, the pain of discipline, the pain of regret. Can you make yourself do this correctly? And can you do it over and over and over so many times that it becomes ingrained? And it's no longer something that you execute because you think about it. It's because you do it as a matter of course. It has become part of your character. And when you see any great football player that does things well over and over has been through that process and has drilled himself or in the case of, of these phenomenal female athletes we're seeing now, has drilled herself into the place that this has become life. This is the habit now, and it is perfection. I've noticed another thing about these particular people. They never quit practicing, ever, as long as they live. And you know something? That takes that takes choosing or finding or serendipitously running into the right mentors I think that's an absolute fact, and uh, serendipity has been fundamental in my life in the area that you uh, mentioned. And if you've read my book and I appreciate you doing that, then you know many of my mentors because I I wrote that book just as an attempt to pay tribute to them. But there are many, many more that have, um, have taken time, and so all we can do is pay that forward and do the very best we can to pass on the message of grace and acceptance and loving people regardless of who they are, where they come from, or how they think, or what their faith or, or their race is, and, uh, and thereby give them a chance to find what's inside that great spark. And, and that's uh, to find that spark and, and, and just so bring it full circle, you know, to that, you know, to how I met you speaking before this Action Ministries uh, inspirational breakfast. Uh, and again, keeping in mind that mission of leading people out of poverty and tying that into this idea of perfect practice. There are certain habits that need to be instilled and what an overwhelmingly difficult job to lead people out of poverty to get them, you know, in that kind of sustained way that you become a great football player to get these people who are so down, you know, and alone, were it not for places like Action Ministries, leading them out of poverty, boy, that takes a lot of mentorship and leadership and consistent, perfect practice. It, it's, it almost seems overwhelming. What, what, what if, any, just a final observation on what you've learned from being involved there and maybe something that we can take into our own lives to help people in our communities. Well, that's easy for me to answer to you because all you've got to do is watch your daughter go sit down with that homeless person and watch her love that person. There's, that's the most beautiful thing I've heard in a long, long time. 
Well, Coach Bill Curry, uh, I look forward to future conversations. I hope you'll uh, you'll agree to sit down with me again because because I know you have a lot more insights to share as well. And uh, thank you for for uh, what are you going to be looking for in, in Sunday's game? Is there anything in particular? I think in this particular game. Um, I think Denver's chance to win is going to be ride with their defense and their pass rush. I think that uh, Carolina cannot block uh, Von Miller and others, and I think there will be pressure on Cam Newton. I think the question in the game is, can they get him on the ground? He is so elusive and so strong, and he can throw so accurately while being hit. I think that will be the difference if the, in, in the game. If Denver can, can get Cam Newton on the ground and get him rattled the way they did Tom Brady, then I think they'll have a chance. Coach Curry, thank you so much for joining Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. <laughs> thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. If you don't know how, just go to my homepage on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it slash Wavemaker and click on the purple iTunes logo. Or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the weekly episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my editor, Brian Morris. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix-and-match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited-time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.